Thank you, brother, very much. What a great preparation for the message this morning. What wonderful songs you chose. We're going to continue on in our message about prayer, using the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. And let me read the text this morning, starting with where we started weeks ago in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. We're going to go through verse 15. Jesus said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of God. You can be seated. And thank you for coming this morning. As you're being seated, would you bow with me? I'd like to pray again and ask for God's help this morning. Father, I'm so grateful for the fact that we can be here. We can gather together freely. Lord, many brothers and sisters across this earth that are suffering persecution in other nations don't have this freedom. Some don't even have the word of God in their own language. Some have it in their own language, but, but can't read it. So, Father, what a blessed, blessed state we're in this morning. We recognize it, and we thank you for it. And I pray, Lord, asking that you would please now apply your eternal truths to our hearts, Lord, as we hear your word. And help me, of course, to present it rightly, Lord. Please, I pray that nothing of myself, nothing of man would be mixed with it, Lord. I pray that only your wisdom, your truth would come through mightily. Please, Father, we pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are visiting, every January, we start the year off with a series on prayer. Just to start the year off right. We refocus ourselves on prayer, the importance of prayer. We all recognize (laughs) that prayer is so important. Prayer is so vital. And we also recognize that we need help praying more, praying better, praying rightly. I do, of all of us. And so, as the pastor of this church, I want, as long as I'm pastor of this church, to start off every year, which I've done for the past three years, starting us off on prayer. This year, we find ourselves using the Lord's Prayer as our, our model prayer to walk through. And this is the last of the series Now, what was the first of the series? You might recall from three weeks ago that our first text was called, um, first sermon was called Prayers About God because we focused on the first part of the Lord's Prayer that says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The next sermon after that, we titled Prayer is About a Kingdom because Jesus then says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last week, the sermon was titled Prayer is About Our Needs. Because Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. And today I've titled the sermon, to end it out, prayers about forgiveness. Because if you notice there towards the end, Jesus talks a lot about that topic. So that's where we're going today. Prayer is about forgiveness. Prayer is about forgiveness, mine and others as well. Jesus makes a point to point that out. Jesus and the rest of Scripture as well, we'll see, makes clear when it comes to forgiveness, that this statement is true. If I have it, meaning if I have forgiveness, if I have it, I'll also give it. 
And if I don't give it, then I probably don't have it. That's the point that Jesus makes. Now, looking at our verses today, because we're just going to be focusing on verses 12 through 15, because we're walking through this whole Lord's Prayer, breaking it down piece by piece, since it's a model prayer. Verses 12 through 15, you could really split into two parts. There are two requests that he starts off with. Then there, at the end, are two if-then statements. So he starts off with two requests, and then he ends with two if-then statements. Now the first, as you probably saw, is a request for forgiveness. Look at it, verse 12. Remember, he's, he's saying, pray like this. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So there's the first request. Forgive us our debts. He's saying, pray like this. Forgive us our debts. Now, what's he mean by that? Now, some of you are thinking, that's not the way I memorized it. (laughs) I memorized the old King James, didn't you? (laughs) What's it say? Forgive us our trespasses, right? Well, it's translated debts in the more modern translations. And, And why is that? Well, thank the Lord, we don't only have this portion of Scripture. We know that Scripture helps us to interpret Scripture. We're supposed to look at it all. And thank the Lord we have something called progressive revelation, meaning God didn't just give everything to Adam and Eve in the garden. He didn't just give everything to Moses. He didn't just give everything to David. He gradually revealed himself to us. And thank the Lord for that, because we have 66 wonderful books, both Old and New Testament, to look at. And so I want us to look at, when it comes to this term debt, so we get a better understanding of just what our debts really mean. I want us to look at Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Now that's going to be on the screen as well behind me. I better save my place there or else I'll lose it. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can just look on the screen behind me. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. The apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Colossae. That's why we call it Colossians. And he mentions here the same word, debts, in something that he's bringing out to them. So I want us to look at this. Look at verses 13 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2. He says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, what does he mean by that? Well, in the context here, because this doesn't just exist alone. In the context, he's been talking about what that uncircumcision of the flesh means. He made the point that the uncircumcision of the flesh represents this hardness, this what's still on your heart keeping you from Christ. The circumcision of the Jews of old wasn't just a standalone thing. It was actually pointing to something else. It was pointing to salvation in Christ when he gives us a new heart taking away what was covering our heart and keeping it cold and dead. And so the circumcision of the flesh, circumcision of the heart rather, means salvation. And he makes that clear in the context. So when he's talking here about the uncircumcision of the flesh, he's talking about being unsaved. Which makes sense because he just talked about, in you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, it means you're dead in your sins and unsaved. It's as simple as that. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, what happened? God made alive together 
with him. Salvation is the work of God. God makes you alive. You don't make your heart new. You don't make your heart live. I know what the world tells you. I know what the world tells you. Hey, work hard and try better and, and make yourself a new you. Okay, I don't doubt that you can sort of train your flesh. And that's not what I'm talking about, right? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was trained. It was burned into my DNA. Say, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Please. Thank you. All those things. You can guarantee if I didn't do it. There would, I would have a hard time sitting down for a little while after that, right? So you can train your flesh, you can, but you can't change your heart. God makes us alive according to this text. How? Why? How does he do it? What's that look like? Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, how did he do that, Paul? Tell us, verse 14, by canceling the record of, there's our word, debt that stood against us with its legal commands. What does he mean? What's this debt that I had? Well, he talks about its legal ramifications here, doesn't he? Legal demands. Whenever you talk about something legal, you're talking about the law. What, he, what he's referring to is the fact that we're lawbreakers. We have transgressed God's laws. God's laws that are most clearly seen and clearly represented in the Ten Commandments. We are lawbreakers. Anyone in here ever lied? So have I. Ever stolen? It's also one of the Ten Commandments. Ever used God's name in vain? Using God's name as a common curse word? Even just yelling out, Jesus, but not calling on him. Even yelling out, Jesus Christ, but not calling on him. Using his name in place of a common filth word. It's called blasphemy. It's very serious. And you've heard that, you know, Jesus said, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, quoting the Ten Commandments. And he says, but I say to you, anyone who's looked upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone ever looked on someone with lust? And guys, that's just for the Ten Commandments. We still have six more pointed at us. We're liars, thieves, blasphemers, and adulterers at heart. That's only four of them. So this is what he's talking about. These legal demands. We are law breakers. And if God were to judge us by the Ten Commandments on the Day of Judgment, we'd be guilty. And if he gave us what we deserved, we'd go to hell. And that's just the truth. But he says here, God canceled the record of our debt. He canceled it. How did he do that? He continues on. He cancels this debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How, Paul? How did he do it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. A direct reference to Jesus Christ being nailed to the cross. How can God forgive us of what we so clearly deserve? Punishment? Someone else was punished in our place. Jesus Christ perfectly kept the law on our behalf. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He never sinned. He was a sinless son of God who chose to die in the place of the sinful. Paul also says elsewhere in Scripture, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin 
transferred to Jesus' account. Jesus crushed as if he was a lawbreaker. He took the wrath of God upon himself when he died and shed his blood on the cross. By faith, if we put our trust and hope only in that work, then his righteousness comes onto our account. That's amazing. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And it says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him elsewhere. In scripture we learn what he means here by rulers and authorities is he means the devil and his demons. He put them to open shame. They thought they had won. They thought they secured this victory because the wages of sin is death and Jesus died and Jesus rose again from the dead, defeating death. And so puts the enemies of God to open shame. So when we pray this, back to our verse, when we pray this in verse 12, forgive us our debts, God can forgive you your debts because someone else paid the price. Jesus Christ, he nailed that record that was against us to the cross. When he died on the cross, that took care of it. All of our sins forever for those who put their faith and trust in him. You don't just get it. Everybody in the world doesn't just get it. It has to be done by faith. You have to believe that Jesus Christ did this for you and put your faith and trust only in that work, nothing else. If it's Jesus plus anything, Jesus plus my good works, Jesus plus the fact that I gave a million dollars to an orphanage, Jesus plus anything, it's false. It's not Jesus plus. It's Christ and Christ alone. His work is sufficient to save sinners. So that's what Jesus can even answer this prayer. Forgive us our debts. He can do that because Jesus took the punishment for those already. And then he says this, forgive us our debts. And then he just makes this assumption. As we also have forgiven our debtors. He's telling you to pray this way. Making an assumption that you've done this, right? Lord, forgive me as I've also forgiven people who've sinned against me. Forgive me my sins just as I've forgiven those who sin against me. In praying that way, he's showing us how he wants us to be. He wants us to be forgivers because we've been forgiven, right? R.C. Sproul said this. He says, Christians forgive others in response to God's forgiveness. But if they do not forgive others, they cannot claim God's forgiveness for themselves. Jesus tells a parable in the same book, Matthew. He tells a parable later on in chapter 18 about this ruler who had a servant. And the servant owed him a lot of money. The amount was substantial. And so the ruler said to him, Hey, listen, you owe me this huge debt. I'm going to put you, your wife, and your children into service for me until y'all pay this debt off. Meaning for him, essentially, a life sentence for him, his wife, his children, in slavery. And so the servant begs the master. He says, please, but I beg you, please don't do this to me. I know I owe you such a huge amount, but I'm t- will you please be merciful to us? Not me, my wife, my children, please. I'm so sorry. I'll pay you in time. Jesus said, the master looked upon the servant and it said this, had pity on him. And the master stood there and said, you know what? 
stand up. I forgive you. Just, we're going to wipe it out. You're free. <laughs> free. He's free. What? Are, you, are you kidding me right now? Wow. And then he says, this same servant then went out in the streets and saw someone who owed him some money, a small amount, Jesus says. And you know what he did? He ran up to the guy and began to choke him and said, pay me what you owe me. Some servants, other servants saw this and they went back to the master and they said, hey, who's acting like that? The master calls him back in and said, I forgave you that massive debt. And this is how you treat others after I've forgiven you such a large debt? And Jesus finishes that parable, which is called the parable of the unforgiving servant. He finishes it by saying, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see the clarity that Jesus gives here. It makes it so very clear. Why would you not forgive others when you've been forgiven a huge debt? Because guess what? Let me tell you this. Your sin against Almighty God is far more substantial than any sin that anyone's ever sinned against you. You might say, well, Cohen, listen, you don't know what so-and-so did to me. You don't know what so-and-so said to me. Okay, I get that. But you don't understand the holiness of God. One sin is enough to send you to hell for eternity? Do you know what that means of the value of the one that you sinned against? Do you know what a crime it is to sin against this one? Do you know what hell screams? Hell screams God is so amazing that even one sin is enough to send you there forever. It screams the greatness of God. It just shows how valuable he is. So Jesus clearly assumes that you're going to forgive others since you've been forgiven such a huge debt. You see, I'm at, that makes sense. It just makes sense. Because if you're not willing to forgive others, then you've not been forgiven yourself. Be sure of that. If you're not willing to forgive others, then you're not forgiven yourself. Be sure of that. Now, let me balance this out. Because I know I'm speaking to a room of people who are a lot like me. You struggle. I struggle. Because trust me, every time someone's nasty or mean or hateful or hurtful towards me, I promise you, my, just, my reflex reaction isn't to say, that's fine, I forgive you. Hit me again. Stab me in the heart again. Twist the dagger a little more. It doesn't matter. I, I'm just so forgiving now. My initial knee-jerk Reaction is usually fleshly. So what I don't mean is that if you struggle in this area, then you're bad and you don't belong here because we don't struggle. No, that's not what I'm saying. We can all struggle. Actually, a struggle means there's a fight. And if there's a fight against evil, then that's a good thing because the Bible says the spirit wars against the flesh. Do you struggle in this area? Forgiveness towards others? I understand that. And so does Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, anyone who feels unable to forgive, let him ask for grace so that he can forgive. 
Anyone who struggles to forgive, let him ask for grace so that he can forgive. So what I'm not saying is if you struggle, then obviously you've not been forgiven. But what I am saying is this, if you refuse to forgive, if you never extend forgiveness because you think someone just did you so wrong that they don't deserve forgiveness, then what I'm saying to you is you probably don't have God's forgiveness either. I am saying that. And I'm saying that not because it's my opinion. I'm saying that on the authority of the word of God and because I love you enough to tell you the truth. Someone once said, your best friend is the person who tells you the most truth. So when you struggle, that's when you ask yourself if you deserve mercy. Do you deserve mercy from God? If you're saved, did you deserve that salvation? If you're saved, did you deserve that forgiveness? If you're saved, did you deserve that mercy? Did you deserve that grace? The word grace in and of itself means unmerited favor, unearned favor, favor from God that you did not earn, that you don't deserve. That's what grace means. That's why grace is so amazing. The second request that Jesus mentions is to be led away from temptation. And it's contrasted with a, like a sub-request in verse 13 for the desire to what you want instead. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, it's a request, Lord, I don't want to be led here, but in contrast, this is what I want instead. Don't do this, but instead, please do this. That's what you can really break it down to at its core, right? Why would Jesus want us to pray to be led away from temptation? Well, you think, well, duh. <laughs> That's because I might sin. Exactly. James 1. Let's look at James 1. Again, Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. Don't just isolate yourself to one part in the Word of God. Look at the rest of the Word of God. Do word studies. Go back and forth, because you see that's all I'm doing. I found the word debt. I said, where else is the word debt used? Went there. Showed you, ha, huh? doesn't this make it more clear? Yes, it does, Cohen. Okay, what about temptation? Where else does the Bible talk about temptation? Ah, in James 1. Let's go there. You can do this too, guys. You can do this too. So I just want to encourage you. You can do what I'm doing, and it'll help you. Really, open up the Scriptures. Because God's given us so much truth. Why not mine all of its riches, right? James 1, 13 through 15, about temptation. This is why Jesus would want us to pray this way. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why, James? Why shouldn't I say that? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, there's a difference between temptations and tests. Tests are when God, is when God has taught you something. He's been working something into you. He's been showing it to you in the scriptures. And then he says, I'm going to put you in a situation now where you can act out what I've been teaching you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put a test here to help make you stronger, to apply what I've been teaching you so that you can grow thereby. Just like we, in essence, test our muscles by giving them more weight. And the more weight we put on them, that resistance makes them bigger because we're testing them with a bigger muscle and they adapt. I mean, with a bigger weight and they adapt. Um, this is why God tests us for our good, but doesn't tempt us. He himself tempts no one, verse 14 of James 1. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured, lured and enticed by his own desire. That's why temptations are so effective, because there's something within your flesh that wants that. We're all born with a natural bent towards sin. It's called our sin nature. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they plunged the whole human race into sin. Everyone who's born after them inherits that sin nature. That's why you don't ever have to teach your children to be stingy or selfish or to say mine or to say no. You don't have to teach them to do that. They do that on their own because we all have that natural bent towards sin. Therefore, we are drawn away by our own desires. So what Jesus is basically teaching us here is, Lord, don't, don't let me have what my sinful flesh wants. Leave me away from that, please. Leave me away from myself and lead me towards you, which brings us back to the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Lord, hallowed be your name. Lord, I want to see your name as holy. We had a whole sermon about that. What does that mean? Asking God for his name to be hallowed, his name to be seen as holy. Well, this... We want to be away from sin and self and closer to God. He tells us why um, being tempted by our own sin is so bad, too, in verse 15, James 1.15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. See, when I'm lured away for that sinful thing, I'm like, oh, I want that, I want that. Then I do it. It's called sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Of course, sin looks good and promises, ooh, good things. And we do it and we find, that was temporary and that damaged me. And now I have this guilt and shame. And those who never feel the guilt and shame, of course, because they're not saved, they, they, they love sin. I remember when I was a sinner, well, what I, hmm, still a sinner, but... I'm a saved sinner. What I mean was, when I was an unsaved sinner, living in the flesh, I didn't feel guilty after I sinned. I only felt guilty when I got caught by mom and dad. That's when I felt guilty. I didn't feel guilty. I liked it. I was planning the next opportunity. When on the calendar can I mark to do this again? Now, having been given a new nature, now when I sin, I realize this isn't a part of my nature. I feel guilty. I feel dirty. I want to be away from this. And that's when we repent and do 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a good sign. It's a good thing. This is why forgiveness is so important as well because unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, it produces a trap. We can be trapped into being tempted to be angry and bitter and hurtful towards people. See, here's the thing when it comes to unforgiveness. Here's, here's what's at the heart of it. You think you're punishing that person by paying that person back by not forgiving that person. In your mind, you think, I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm going to punish him. I'm going to punish her. I'm not going to forgive him. I'm not going to forgive her. She doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. So I'm going to punish him by not extending forgiveness, but you're actually punishing yourself and your soul. It's a trap. It's a deadly trap. You're choosing to live in the prison of anger and hurt and revenge, and it is a cancer that eats you up. True, real forgiveness 
is foreign to the one who's never experienced true and real forgiveness. They don't get it. That's why they don't extend it to others because they've not experienced it themselves. If you've experienced it yourself, true, real forgiveness from God, you're willing to extend that to others because here you are standing saying, I didn't deserve what this good God gave to me. I only deserved his wrath because I only broken his laws. And yet, he sent his son to take the punishment that should have been mine. And so how could I not extend forgiveness to you? Of course. Of course I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. But when we don't do that, when we get into the lies that we think, no, I'm going to hold this, and that person's going to feel it. Usually that person doesn't feel it. Usually that person's just off living life not thinking about you, not caring, and you're ruining your own life. Church, we don't want any part of evil. So why would we want to act like the evil one himself, the devil? The devil wants you to be hard and bitter and hold all that hatred in your heart. He wants you to be a walking collection of hurts, and pain who never extends forgiveness to others. Because if you extend forgiveness to others, then guess what? You're being like God. And he does not want that. The evil one does not want that. He wants you to be like him. But if you instead turn away from those things, then you don't stay in the prison of your soul. Jesus tells us to pray, deliver us from evil. All evil. Any form of evil. Because it's not becoming for the child of God. It's not becoming for the child of God to live that way. You've been given a new nature. And that new nature hates sin. See, when you get saved, you start to love God more and more. And start to hate evil more and more. Those two things are going to be true about you if you're saved. Someone says, I don't know if I'm saved. I'm not sure if I'm saved. How do I know if I'm saved? You will... Be loving God more and more and more, which will show itself in wanting to obey him more and more and more. Because you can't say that you love God while you're walking in disobedience to him blatantly and on purpose. I don't mean you're walking in perfection, but in direction, right? If you're loving God more and more, obeying him more and more, and hating sin more and more, those two things will be true about you. And so Jesus tells us to pray, deliver us from evil. Evil's who we used to be. Evil is a part of the old nature. Jesus ends with these two if-then statements that I was telling you about in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The the then is sort of implied. He doesn't say then, but it's clearly an if-then statement. He's saying if you forgive others, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. Verse 15, but if you don't forgive others, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. Yes, this is an if-then statement, but... If you read this as only an if-then statement, it makes it sound like once, you're, for, once you forgive, then that's when God forgives you. It makes it sound like that. Yeah, like if this is all we had, if you were on an island and a lone portion of Scripture washed up, it was just ripped out and, it was, and, all, and all you had was this from the Bible, verses 14 and 15 of, of Matthew chapter 6, you might conclude that you get the forgiveness when you do the forgiving. Is that sort of how it makes it sound here? If this was a standalone text and we had nothing else from Jesus' teaching, 
or the rest of Scripture to compare this to. But when we take the rest of Scripture into account, we quickly find that the changed heart produces the changed life. The changed heart produces the changed life. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're almost done, guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is pretty incredible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this list. <laughs> or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What kind of unrighteous people, Paul? Tell me. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, some translations translate that as fornication, sex outside of marriage, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. How true is that? That's even true of many of us in this room. I see some of those descriptions that fit me. Some of those descriptions do fit the old me. I was some of those things. And such were some of you, he says, this church at Corinth. Some of you were like that, he says. But what happened, Paul? Tell us, but what happened? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Do you see what he says? You were like that, but then this happened. You got saved, you got washed, you got changed by Jesus Christ. The Spirit did that work in your heart and changed you. See, that's, that's what makes the change. God saving a soul being born again. That's what makes the change. So yes, this is an if-then statement. But what's true is this. It's better understood when we take Scripture as a whole that when Jesus says this, if you forgive others their, their trespasses, it shows that your Heavenly Father has forgiven you. If you don't forgive others their, their trespasses, it shows that you've not been forgiven. It shows that you've not received that same forgiveness. That's really how to better understand that when we take Scripture as a whole. And even when we take just the rest of the, that sermon as a whole, Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, this, this is right in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded sermon of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. It covers chapter 5, 6, and 7. So even if we just take the rest of that as a whole, we can see what Jesus means here is, if you forgive others, it shows that your Heavenly Father has already forgiven you. If you don't forgive others, it shows that your Heavenly Father has not forgiven you. The power of God changes the heart, and it's that same power that can make you forgive from the heart. Let me say that again. The power of God changes the heart. And it's that same power that changed your heart that can make you forgive people from the heart. And that's true. But don't just take my word for it. I want you to hear it from someone else as well. There was a lady who lived long ago. Her name was Corey Ten Boom, or Corey Ten Boom. As they say it, we say boom. She and her sister were Christians. And they were helping hide Jews during World War II. 
Well, the Nazis found out about that. And the Nazis sent them to the same place they were sending the Jews. And Corrie ten Boom and her sister found themselves in a Nazi concentration camp from which her sister did not return. Her sister died there. And then one day, this happened to Corrie ten Boom. And I'm going to let her tell you herself. Now, she died back in 83, I believe. So this recording was probably from the 70s. It's very low quality recording. And she has a very thick accent, okay? So do your best to try to get from this. But I think you'll get enough. I think you'll get enough. Let's, let's hear this from Corrie ten Boom. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Boom, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel aufseers in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian. I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world. Also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Tambom, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5, 5. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. And we pray, Father, that you would please help us apply these eternal truths to our hearts. We thank you so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the punishment for our sins that should have been ours. Father, I pray that you would please help us to be like Jesus. Or for those who might not know you yet, I pray that they would come to you. You offer forgiveness of sins freely. The price has already been paid. And Lord, for those of us who have been saved, who might be struggling with anger or discontentment or retribution, Lord, in our hearts, give us the grace like you gave to Corey ten Boom, Lord, to forgive a, a Nazi whose sister died at his hands. 
you can help her with that, you can help us. We pray this in your son's perfect name. Amen.